Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Now here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello and thank you for being here today. This episode takes us to hell at least according to the marketing materials for the film being discussed today, The Poseidon Adventure. Specifically, the tagline used the phrase hell upside down to describe the ordeal a group of survivors of a cruise ship's capsizing undertake in their quest for rescue. But the film and the score that accompany it are not hellish to experience, even though many critics at the time were quick to thumb their noses up at the movie which remains one of the signature films of the disaster genre that permeated movie theaters in the 1970s. And those who have been following this podcast since the beginning will know the name of the man who is responsible for the popularity of these films, Erwin Allen. In the 1960s, Allen made a lot of money for 20th Century Fox as a producer and director of the science fiction films Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and The Lost World, then submitted his status in Hollywood as creator of the TV shows Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, and Land of the Giants. Though most of the plots might seem a bit laughable through today's eyes, the special effects at the time were amazing, and also expensive. Allen also spared no cost in getting a composer to write theme music that would almost outlive the TV shows. John Williams wrote theme music for all three of Allen's TV shows, cementing a relationship with Allen that would continue when Allen decided to put his big-budget ideas into theatrical films. Erwin Allen wanted to use the big screen to amplify his visions for action movies. And after using the template created by the successful 1970 film Airport, Allen set his attention squarely on the Paul Gallico novel The Poseidon Adventure. Allen knew he could get people into the theater if he put some big-name celebrities in the picture, then audience would walk away amazed by the special effects. This one-two punch essentially is why Allen had a hard time getting a studio to finance the film. At $5 million, it was just too expensive. But Allen's relationship with 20th Century Fox helped him, as the studio agreed to put up half the money if Allen would put up the remaining $2.5 million. Allen agreed, and in fall 1971, pre-production began and a casting call for those Hollywood stars also began. Erwin Allen and director Ronald Neem worked hard to convince some big-name actors to break against type and star in a big action movie. He got four Oscar winners to say yes. Those actors were Red Buttons, Ernest Borgnine, Shelley Winters, and Jack Albertson. That number grew to five Oscar-winning actors one week after filming began in April 1972. Gene Hackman accepted the award for leading actor for his iconic work as Popeye Doyle in The French Connection, the 1971 winner for Best Picture. Hackman was already getting Oscar buzz for his work on The French Connection when he was signed to do The Poseidon Adventure, but the win certainly helped bring attention to his first real foray into action films, not counting his great work in Bonnie and Clyde. At that same Academy Awards ceremony, John Williams won his Oscar for adapting the score to Fiddler on the Roof. Certainly, Erwin Allen was cheering when he heard Williams' name announced, not just because the two were friends, but because Allen already had Williams in mind for scoring the Poseidon Adventure, 
and the fact that the number of Oscar winners now stood at 15 when production began was a big selling point for Irwin Allen. When Allen and Williams worked together in the 1960s, Williams' film work consisted largely of comedies that didn't get much attention in Hollywood, but offered Williams the chance to hone his craft. When he was hired to take on the music for The Poseidon Adventure, Williams was starting to find his voice as he strayed away from just doing comedies, and this marked the first opportunity to branch out into pure action outside of the Western genre for the first time in his career. Not long before Williams was added to the impressive roster of crew people on The Poseidon Adventure, two men came in to give the film a song to be performed at the New Year's Eve ball before the traumatic capsizing. Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn noted the film's premise and decided to not just write any old song. They would write a song that at first would highlight just the upcoming danger, but upon a rewrite, there was a quest for hope added in. The song is called The Morning After, and I do love the song, though some might call it kitschy by today's standards. The film version is performed by a studio singer named Renee Armand and lip-synced in the film by actress Carol Lindley. There's a glimmer of hope in the lyrics, as I said, but the music doesn't offer enough hope for us to think that survival is imminent. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light Oh, can't you see the morning after It's waiting right outside the storm Why don't we cross the bridge together And find a place that's safe and warm The practice of putting a song in the movies is not new, as we have heard in previous episodes of this podcast, but I don't think the initial goal was to create a marketable song. The film featured a band playing in the New Year's Eve party, so the song did fit organically into the plot. The song was recorded in March 1972, just before filming began, so Lindley could properly lip-sync it during production. 
I'll talk a bit more about the song later, but what is amazing about Williams' score for The Poseidon Adventure is that he did not use the melody from the song very much in the film, really only twice. This is a dramatic departure from his previous assignments that had songs written specifically for the film. Certainly, this had to free up John Williams to write the score the way he intended without being constrained to using someone else's melody. What stands out for me in this score is the scarcity of big, strong symphonic moments outside of the opening credits and the end credits. And there isn't much music in the film, only about 30 minutes. Williams and Neem made an interesting decision to let the acting, set design, and special effects speak for themselves. For example, there are a lot of explosions in the film, but there's no music behind any of them. Williams and Neem could have made a great case for wall-to-wall music to keep the tension up, but I'm glad it didn't happen. As I said, the opening credits feature some bold and brassy music, while also setting up the doom that will dominate the movie. Instead of starting with a blast from the orchestra, Williams composed music for the cellos and bass strings to tell us that this is not going to be a bright and cheerful movie. Then, the bold main theme enters. It's only about two minutes long, but that music does well to set up the film. Upon hearing that title music, I noticed that the main theme sounded familiar to my ears. After a little thought, I remembered that it's one of the themes in the movie Independence Day with music by David Arnold. Take a listen to one of the music cues and you'll hear the similarities.
It's likely that producer Dean Devlin and director Roland Emmerich wanted a very John Williams sound for the Independence Day score, and possibly the music from the Poseidon Adventure was used as a temp track to guide editing. Instead of trying to go for a John Williams sound for the 2000 film The Patriot, Devlin and Emmerich got the man himself, with John Williams writing the score for that film. We don't hear underscore again until the big tsunami wave approaches the ship, about 27 minutes into the film. There's a rumble in the orchestra as we see the wave for the first time. Then, the music goes away as the ship is hit. Any director these days would have wanted loud and obnoxious music during the capsizing sequence, but I'm so glad that that trend would not take hold for at least 10 years. One big heroic musical moment comes appropriately when Gene Hackman's character, a renegade minister, leads a group of men to lift the Christmas tree in order to climb to safety. Here's one of the moments when John Williams uses the melody from The Morning After in the underscore. It's when Red Button's character convinces Carol Lindley's character to leave her dead brother behind to find a way out. The music is so quiet in the finished film that I barely noticed it at first. Once that scene is over, we go to Hackman's Reverend Scott as he tries to appeal to the survivors who decide to stay in the dining room instead of climbing the tree.
And our last piece of out-and-out action music in the main body of the film comes when a wave crashes through the dining room wall and begins to flood the room. In a panic, the survivors try to climb the tree to escape the rushing waters. The cymbal crash you will hear comes as the Christmas tree falls under the weight of the people climbing it. Then there's a great moment in the strings that kind of eulogizes those who won't be able to escape the flooding room. first obstacle for the ten survivors is the galley, or the kitchen. Reverend Scott goes through first to make sure it's passable. It's our first look at the damage done elsewhere in the ship, and Williams goes a little weird in the underscore with some kooky instrumentation to highlight the unsettling atmosphere. A little later, the Reverend pledges to find the engine room by himself within 15 minutes. He has to climb through some tight spaces to find it, and this is my favorite moment musically in the film. The atonal pianos highlight the uncertain outcome of his search, and just gives us something a little different in the underscore while still keeping in the low register.
The music continues to be low and ominous throughout, but never trying to scare us. It's just a constant reminder that, as we see with the unexpected and sudden demise of the waiter Acres, death can come at any time. The first time I watched this film, back when I was in college a few years back, I was stunned that Shelley Winters' character, Belle, dies. I would argue that Winters was the biggest star of the film, even bigger than Gene Hackman, thanks to her two Oscar wins and box office success as a supporting player. Her death two-thirds of the way through the movie had to hit audiences hard in 1972, like the death of Marion Crane in the shower in Psycho. And here is where John Williams shows how much reverence he has for the visuals in a movie. He did write music to play in the moments following Bell's heart attack after swimming underwater to the engine room. That music doesn't add to our shock, but goes with the visuals, as Belle speaks her tender last words with Reverend Scott. The music during her dying words weren't used in the film, but I'll play it here. The music in the film begins here as the rest of the survivors worry if Belle and Reverend Scott were able to swim to safety as they promised. Ernest Borgnine's character jumps into the water to see what happened and the music returns in the film.
Another great point about Williams' excellent work at spotting when to put music into the film is highlighted by the fact that he doesn't score the moments when the survivors swim underwater to the engine room. Perhaps he didn't write music for it because we feel in our hearts that they will all make it. But it's when Nani says she can't swim that we worry again about losing another character. So, Williams comes back in with the music, accompanied briefly by the melody from The Morning After to remind Nani that she needs to keep going, and it's not so much tense as it is urgent. Of the ten original people who climbed the Christmas tree to find an escape, six survive. As the survivors watch a hole being cut in the hull, Williams grieves with them as they think about who won't be leaving the ship alive. But once that hole is cut out, there's no more time for grief. 
The six climb into a helicopter with the main theme finally getting the full orchestral treatment for the first time since the film's opening. A lot of precedents were started by the immense success of the Poseidon Adventure. The film made almost $100 million in the United States, just behind The Godfather. This signaled that Allen's formula worked, with his focus on amazing special effects and photorealism, 
upping the ante on the genre. As we will see, disaster films will all feature big-name stars and make sure the special effects are top-notch. Think of any major disaster genre film that follows this, and you will remember that there were major stars in the film, and the effects almost always won Oscars, or at least were nominated. The effects in this Poseidon adventure were so far ahead of the rest of the pack in 1972 that the Motion Picture Academy decided to just give that film's special effects supervisors the visual effects Oscar without having to go through the competition. The Poseidon Adventure was nominated for eight Academy Awards, a major feat at the time for a pure action film. But since it was essentially a popcorn film, it did not get a nomination for Best Picture. John Williams did get a nomination for his sparse score, and I feel the Academy was honoring him for what he didn't write more than for what he did write. He lost to the Charlie Chaplin movie Limelight, which was actually made in 1952, but did not get a big release when Hollywood blacklisted Chaplin during the McCarthy anti-communism era in the 1950s. It was finally released nationwide in 1972, making it eligible for the Oscars. John Williams got a second nomination for original score that year for his work on Images, which is the movie featured in our next episode. Okay, so what else was inspired by the success of the Poseidon Adventure? A big, sorrowful pop song, of course. The Morning After won the Oscar for Original Song, surprising a few people who thought Michael Jackson's performance of the song Ben would propel that to a win even though Jackson himself didn't write the song and wasn't eligible to win an Oscar. Even the film's songwriters didn't think the song would win. Rene Armand's version was not played on the radio. The radio version was sung by an aspiring singer named Maureen McGovern, whose version went all the way to number one and helped the song earn gold status and made McGovern a big star. Erwin Allen would ask Kasha and Hershorn to write a song two years later for The Towering Inferno, winning an Oscar for that one as well. And 25 years after the Poseidon adventure, Celine Dion sang about her heart going on for the movie Titanic, and we know how well that song turned out. And it continued a few years later in the film Pearl Harbor. John Williams recorded his score for the Poseidon Adventure in late September 1972, about two weeks after the massacre at the Munich Olympics. Williams would revisit that time in 2005 with Steven Spielberg's film about the revenge plot to kill those who planned the massacre. The Poseidon Adventure was what we might call at the time typical Williams. Great thematic material and attention to orchestration details. But the score to a movie that would be released a week later remains the one score that John Williams fans still agree is very un-Williams. We'll talk about the score to Images on the next episode, and I'll be joined by a special guest to talk about the creation and performance of this very unusual score. Until then, feel free to voice your comments about the show to me through email at jeffswim at aol.com or by posting a comment on the Podbean app. It's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, the baton is down. Mm -hmm.